Hello and welcome to Kerrang Bank Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we'll be looking at issue number 570, November the 4th, 1995, £1.50 every Wednesday. That's what it says on the front of the Kerrang, it's not me saying that, although this podcast does come out every Wednesday like Kerrang used to. So I had a lot of feedback um, about last week's uh, episode of the podcast um, where Kerrang had changed its entire layout and um, yeah I wasn't the only one that wasn't a bit disappointed about it but what can we do that was almost 30 years ago now and uh, we're still gonna still gonna go through and review the magazine uh, I'll probably just make some uh, snipey little comments here and there about how I don't like stuff but you know you have to get used to it we all had to get used to it back then uh, you know it's one of those things the cover stars for Kerrang! this week are the Wild Hearts, the last tour, the last interview, but will they have the last laugh? Pearl Jam, new single and UK dates. Ozzy Osbourne, I was chased by an elephant. Blind Melon Singer found dead, full tribute inside. Plus, Alice in Chains, Metallica, Honeycrack, Alanis Morissette, four posters, Therapy, Fear Factory, Shannon Hoon and Apes, Pigs and Spacemen. You will have noticed, um, for those of you that have ears, <laughs> which is all of you, that I haven't chosen the Wild Hearts to be the music for this week. Um, they've had the cover a couple of times this year, and um, this is the issue of Kerrang! where they've announced, as I've just mentioned, that Shannon Hoon, the blind melon singer, um, had passed away, was, was found dead. So I decided to um, use Soup by Blind Melon as the uh, music for this week's episode. I think you'll agree. It's probably uh, quite a fitting thing to do. If you would like to get in contact with us here at Kerrang Back Issues, we can be contacted uh, Instagram, Kerrang Back Issues, Twitter, Kerrang Pod, and email, Issues at gmail.com. If you also would like to leave us a review on Apple Music or Spotify, that would be bloody lovely. Thank you very much in advance. So there is no word from the editor in this week's um, issue of the magazine. However, there are some free t-shirt transfers. There's one that says 667 Kerrang Louder Than Satan. Uh, and I love grunge one. Um, smoking with a Kerrang low, like K over a um, cannabis leaf. Natural born killers with the eyes of Charles Manson. Murder sex art. I mean, a, a gun. I don't know why they've done this. A gun with some blood next to it and Kerrang written on the gun. It's really, really crap. I think I think even at the time I realised how crap these were. Uh, I think I said last week, I probably did try to put one on a t-shirt just, um, just to do it. And I don't think it worked. <laughs> I don't think it was very good. Um, yeah, so unfortunately there's no word from the editor this week. But what we do have... Uh, uh, some instructions on how to put the uh, transfers onto your t-shirt and this bit I like very much. Important, if you have not used an iron before or you are under eight, uh, sorry, 16 years of age, please get someone to help you who is capable of using an iron. Very wise words there from Kerrang. So yeah, let's kick off um, this week with news. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Shannon Hoon, 1967 to 1995. 
Blind Melon vocalist Shannon Hoon died of a suspected drug overdose on Saturday, October 21st in New Orleans. He was 28. Hoon was found slumped, unconscious on the band tour bus by their tour manager, who called the police when he couldn't wake the singer. At the time of Hoon's death, the band were playing a club tour of the US. Their last gig was at Numbers in Houston, Texas on Friday, October 20th. An eyewitness at the show told Kerrang that Hoon stumbled around as if disorientated during the set. They left for New Orleans, where they were scheduled to play at Tipitina's uh, at 2am on October 21st. They arrived in the city seven hours later and stopped in a parking lot near the venue. Hoon was found dead at 1.30pm. Hoon had been through a well-publicised battle against drug addiction during the past couple of years. The band's co-manager Doug Goldstein told the LA Times newspaper that he had entered drug rehab centres at least twice in recent months. While Hoon's mother, Nell, told Rolling Stone magazine in October 1993, when he got into drugs, I just gave up hope. He just turned 26 and there were times I didn't think he'd live that long. Although the results of an autopsy on Hoon's body were incomplete at the time of going to press, they were expected to confirm that he had suffered a drug overdose. Hoon had only become a father six months ago when his girlfriend Lisa Krause gave birth to a baby daughter, Nico Blue. I really love the guy and I just feel horrible for his baby, Goldstein told the LA Times. Blind Melon's self-titled debut album, which was released in 1992, sold more than 2 million copies in the US. It was propelled by the No Rain video which featured the B-Girl, with whom the band subsequently became synonymous, and which enjoyed saturation coverage on MTV. Their second album, Soup, which was released earlier this year, had been less well received and had slipped out of the Billboard Top 200 last week. A private service for Hoon's close family and friends was held in his hometown, Lafayette, Indiana, last week. His bandmates, guitarist Roger Stevens and Christopher Form, bassist Brad Smith and drummer Glenn Graham had reportedly initially congregated at Stevens' parents' house in Mississippi. Their US tour has been cancelled and all their future plans are on hold. At the request of Hoon's family, an educational fund has been set up for his daughter. All donations should be sent to Nico Blue Hoon, care of Shapiro & Co, 9229 Sunset Boulevard, Suite 607, Los Angeles, California, 969. Pearl Jam will release a new single through Epic on December the 5th, which will feature a guest appearance from Neil Young, who the band backed on his recent Mirrorball album. Featuring two new tracks, I Got ID and Long Road, the single will be packaged under the title Merkin Ball. Both songs were recorded in Seattle at the same time as the Mirrorball sessions. The former features Eddie Vedder vocals guitar, Neil Young guitar vocals pump organ, producer Brendan O'Brien bass and Jack Irons drums, while the latter has Pearl Jam's Jeff Ament taking over the bass duties. The band are currently taking a break from recording their new album, although they are scheduled to begin mixing soon. Eddie Vedder has recently been spotted in a New York studio, apparently recording music for an as yet unspecified film soundtrack. Pearl Jam's fourth studio album will now emerge in March or April of next year. According to a spokesman for the band, they will tour the UK and Europe to coincide with its release. Metallica looks certain to headline the enormous Hollywood Rocks Festival which will take place in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil next January. The San Franciscan superstars have apparently already accepted an offer to top the bill on one of the nights the event will be spread over. Although the dates have yet to be confirmed, other bands who are currently being strongly linked with Hollywood Rocks are Smashing Pumpkins and Hole, who are now both managed by the same company who handle Metallica's affairs, Q Prime and rock legends Page Plant. Full details of the Hollywood Rocks extravaganza are expected to be announced in the near future. Metallica are currently working on their new studio album in San Francisco with producer Bob Rock. 
It's due for release next year. Guns N' Roses have split up. <gasps> Shock horror, according to the latest reports coming out of Hollywood, California. Sources close to the troubled US superstars have indicated that frontman Axl Rose and guitarist Slash have had another major falling out, but this time it could lead to a permanent parting of the ways. The unpredictable vocalist is said to be working on new material for a proposed solo album, using only Dizzy Reed keyboards from the GNR camp. Slash is rumoured to be concentrating on his Snake Pit project after the success of their debut album It's 5 O'Clock Somewhere in Europe and Japan. Guns N' Roses bassist Duff McKagan and drummer Matt Sorum are currently playing club gigs with XX Pistols guitarist Steve Jones and Duran Duran bassist John Taylor as neurotic boy outsiders. Fear Factory, the acclaimed LA cyber metalers, are currently leading the fight to force the mainstream media in the US to recognise heavier forms of music. The sort of music bands like Machine Head and Us Play is being ignored by MTV and most radio stations in the States right now, explains their guitarist Dino Gazeres. Unless you're a punk or rap, then you've got no chance of getting any exposure, so we're doing things the old-fashioned way by touring. The band's cause has been helped by two high-profile support tours in the US with Ozzy Osbourne and Megadeth, but their D-manufacture has still received far more attention in Europe. Heavy metal music has gone back underground in America, says Cazares. It'll stay there until a band makes the sort of breakthrough Metallica did 10 years ago. Fear Factory released a new single, a cover of UK proto-industrial outfit Head of David's Dog Day Sunrise through Roadrunner on November the 6th. They returned to the UK to support Ozzy Osbourne at Ipswich Region uh, November 8th, Portsmouth Guildhall 9th, Wolverhampton Civic Hall 11th, Nottingham Rock City 12th, Sheffield City Hall 14th, Manchester Apollo 15th, Newport Centre 17th, London Brixton Academy 18th, Glasgow Baronlands 20th, Newcastle City Hall 21st. The band also make the following personal appearances at Wolverhampton Mike Lloyd Music November 11th 2pm, Manchester Power Cuts 15th, London Metalhead 18th, Glasgow Missing Records 20th uh, all at 12pm. They also headlined Birmingham Exposure Rock Cafe at 10pm on November the 10th. Admission on that night is free. Therapy have filmed one of the most powerful promo videos for years to accompany their Diane single which will emerge through A&M on November the 6th. Diane was originally recorded by Minneapolis uh, punk legends Husker Du, written by their drummer Grant Hart. It tells the true story of a woman who was abducted at knife point, raped and brutally killed. Therapy's version sets the grim tale against a sparse string background. The video is equally disturbing. Directed by Wiz, who worked with the band on their last promo for Loose, it features Andy Cairns as the murderer, who records his victim in a series of graphic flashbacks. The video's gothic mood and its cinematic style, which recalls David Lynch's acclaimed cult movie Blue Velvet, ensures that the video is both deeply disturbing and uncomfortably provocative, with Cairns running a knife across his cheek as he sees the near-naked, heavily pregnant girl showered with water. The final images of the girl's grey corpse and of a naked Cairns cradled in her arms linger long after the video is finished. Two versions of the Diane video have been cut, the uncensored original and the one which will be broadcast which edits out the knife scene and the more explicit nudity. Understand the up-and-coming British post-hardcore mob who recently toured with Shelter and Therapy have hit back at critics who claim they're merely copying US bands like Fugazi and the recently deceased Quicksand. Those bands always wanted to be UK punks, the Ruts anyway, snorts guitarist Rob. The Ruts were influenced by Dr Feelgood, who came from Southend, so we feel like it's all come full circle. We'll be more than a match for American bands as things go on. 
But Rob admits that the slogan Understand Southend on the band's flight cases isn't the equivalent of Biohazard's Brooklyn tattoos. It's just a joke and it helps us spot our stuff at airports, he chuckles. Nevertheless, the band's new single is proudly titled Southend. The debut album Burning Bushes and Burning Bridges will follow on East West on November the 6th. Whale have been forced to cancel a handful of their forthcoming UK tour dates because singer Sia Berg has been threatened with divorce. Berg was married in Sardinia during September, but because of prior band commitments, she still hasn't been able to find the time for a honeymoon. However, her husband has finally run out of patience and has told her that they either have a belated honeymoon in November or else face um, he'll begin divorce proceedings. Therefore, in the interests of marital harmony, the eccentric Swedish band have cancelled the last five dates of the tour. Whale will now play London Camden Underworld November 2nd, Newcastle Riverside 9th, Glasgow King Tut's 10th, Leeds Cockpit 11th, Nottingham Rock City 13th, Manchester Boardwalk 14th and Birmingham Foundry 16th. Ames, Pigs and Spacemen singer Paul Miro this week admitted that he was once a member of a teen pop band called Candy Flip who had a number one hit with a cover of the Beatles' Strawberry Fields Forever. Candy Flip hit the top of the British charts in April 1990. They appeared on Top of the Pops performing the song and were cover styles on the UK's premier teen pop weekly smash hits on two separate occasions. However, Candy Flip's second single disappeared without a trace and the band split as one-hit wonders. It was the biggest financial disaster of my career, recalls Miro. I was working in the studio, doing my own demos of techno stuff. They needed a guitarist, so I joined and they went to number one. I did an album with them and never got paid. We toured for a year, but it was embarrassing teeny bop stuff. Fans not old enough to have sex with, fainting all over the place. Most nights, I locked myself into my hotel room. I've been involved with so many things, Miro continues. I nearly ended up living in Japan for a while. My mum and dad wanted me to be an English teacher and I studied hard, but I've always been music based. Just a little note here that there is now no longer records news or tour news in Kerrang. Uh, in case you're wondering why I haven't done that for the past couple of weeks. A little bit annoying because I, uh, I quite liked um, the records news and the tour news. It was always uh, interesting to see who was touring, see what was going on and also to see what the mental helicopters were up to. So. Don't know, don't know what we're going to do if we don't know what they're doing. Uh, let's move on to American news. American news. And we start this week with Don K in New York. Type a negative on a status quo. A lot has been happening in the Big Apple this week. KMFDM played a Blind River gig at the Roseland Ballroom attended by all the usual music industry suspects and all of Type of Negative who are busily putting together their new album. Type of Negative played their own New York show on Halloween at which they performed covers of Neil Young's Cinnamon Girl and Status Quo's oldie Pictures of Matchstick Men. The Neurotic Boy Outsiders, that's Guns N' Roses men Duff McKagan and Matt Sorum, XX Pistol Steve Jones and Duran Duran's John Taylor to you, appeared at Irving Plaza. With Billy Idol guesting on vocals, they ran for a set that was a mixture of punk covers and 70s chestnuts, including the generous helping of Stooges and Pistols tunes, and a nod to Idol's old band Generation X. For openers though, they elected to resurrect Duran Duran's ancient planet Earth. Ministries managers John and Marsha Zazula hosted a preview of the band's eagerly awaited new album Filth Pig, and judging from the tracks we heard, 
it's well worth the wait. Monster riffs and a grinding slightly less mechanised sound prevail on cuts like Dead Guy, Reload and the awesome 7 minute game show. Filth Pig comes out in the US on January the 15th and it looks set to be one of the rock masterpieces of 1996. The post-mortem on the Quicksand and Caius breakups has the former's Walter Schreifels continuing to work as a producer and the latter's frontman John Garcia joining Karma to Burn. If Garcia can get out of his electric contract, Karma to Burn will be a good place for him to regroup. The band's music is superbly heavy and the one song I've heard with Garcia singing sounds great. Their album's done, it's just waiting for vocals. As for Schreifels, he's riding high with the growing success of Steve's Set Your Goals album which he produced. More studio assignments look imminent. Finally, a brief obituary for Wax Tracks Records, President co-founder Jim Nash, who died of age-related complications on October the 10th. Wax Tracks was known for carrying the indie and underground albums no other record store had, and the same effort was brought to the record label, which launched the careers of artists like Ministry, KMFDM, My Life with a Thrill Kill Cult, and Front 242. Nash was 47. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. Contrary to all the rumours, Scott Weiland has not left Stone Temple Pilots. In fact, he and his fellow bandmates have rejoined forces and are currently recording at a remote location somewhere in California, where they've converted a ranch into a studio to make their third album. Weiland's signed band, The Magnificent Bastards, are also alive and kicking. They recently did a photo session for the cover of US rock magazine RIP and their cover uh, John Lennon's While You Were Sleeping is on the tribute album to the ex-Beatle working class hero which has just been released in the States by Hollywood Records. The current Magnificent Bastards lineup is Wyland, guitarist Xander Schloss ex-Weirdos, Felonious Monster and the man who filled in for the Chili Peppers between John Frusciante and Eric Marshall, drummer Victor ex Samayan, and bassist Bob Thompson ex-Big Drill Car extra large. He's married to Wyland's ex-girlfriend. Weezer bassist Matt Sharp has a side project called The Rentals, which was apparently started as a joke, but they found themselves having a radio hit with a catchy little ditty called Friends of P. I'd invite anyone not to get this stuck in their head for days after hearing its sing-song chorus. If you're friends with P, then you're friends with me. Who the hell is P anyway? One can only hope that they're not singing about that god-awful Johnny Depp butthole surfer Gibby Haynes fiasco, as The Rentals' debut album Return of the Rentals hits the streets, the band are hitting the road opening for... Uh, I forgot who, but it's somebody cool, I think. While vacationing in LA, Pearl Jam's Stone Gossard dropped in to see UK band Radiohead in concert. He licked my face and said he loved it, but I think he was talking about Radiohead and looking for chocolate. Either way, he ran off backstage and I stuck around to watch Headliner's Soul Asylum. I can't say it was their best show, but I can say I was surprised when towards the end of their set, Dave Perna burst into a cover of the Ben Lee track Song For You. Lee is a 15-year-old Australian lad who writes brilliant pop songs, had a record called Grandpa Wood on Beastie Boy Mike D's Grand Royal label and Perna is his number one fan. And next up this week we join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. There's little chance of Candlebox's singer Kevin Martin ever wanting to fill Courtney Love's shoes but her bra. Well that's a completely different matter. On the cover of a recent issue of Seattle's Music Winkly, The Rocket, the 26-year-old and his bandmates Peter Klett, Buddy Martin and Scott Mercado donned platinum wigs, tiaras and slips to mimic their nemesis, the whole lead singer, who has been outspoken in her hatred of them. Kevin Martin was also given the opportunity to boost his own parts by wearing a white bra which had been left behind by the lobster during a previous photo session. The idea to dress all of Candlebox up in drag as Courtney Love came from the Rockets editor Charles Cross, he later cracked, 
I wasn't the only person at the photo session to remark that Kevin is a far more feminine version than the real thing. The bad feeling between Love, Cross and Candlebox came to a head last year when a critics chart of the top LPs in the Northwest's musical history appeared in the rocket. Hole didn't qualify as they were deemed to be from Seattle, Candlebox did. In a customary style, Love complained to the paper about her band's no-show and also claimed that Candlebox had relocated to the city from Texas just to cash in on the grunge explosion. Candlebox have faced similar criticisms ever since they signed with Madonna's Maverick label and scored a massive hit with their debut album. Courtney's attack doesn't really hold up though. Martin moved to Seattle with his parents when he was 14. The rest of the band have been in the city all their lives. And with new album Lucy climbing up the billboard chart, they're quickly becoming the boys with the most cake. Also making headlines in the Emerald City this week is the ongoing and unlikely success story that is the presidents of the United States of America. There might be a million better bands with a million better songs, but that hasn't stopped the quirky trio's debut album from shooting up the Billboard charts to number 23, leaving even the Foo Fighters trailing in their wake. One promoter in Seattle even had enough faith in the band's popularity to arrange a homecoming show at the city's Moore Theatre on the same night as multi-million selling punk Green Day played the arena, and he didn't regret his decision either. The band are currently spending a couple of weeks off at home in Seattle, while bassist Chris Ballou gets married and enjoys a honeymoon in Hawaii. Next month, they'll be back on the road again and also on the soundtrack to the second Ace Ventura movie, which stars Jim Carrey. Not bad for a band who recently described themselves as sounding like Paul McCartney backed by Aerosmith playing toy instruments. Beaver, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Lives. And the first concert reviewed this week is Honeycrack, China Drum and Reverse live at the Junction Cambridge on Sunday, October 22nd. This one is reviewed by Paul Brannigan and this one gets 4 out of 5. One thing I didn't know last week is that on lives, what they've done for each um, main concert that they review, so they've, they've broken out where there's like 3 or 4 main concerts and then there's also some um, like smaller reviews of concerts which don't get as much... Um, you know, word, uh, wording, wordplay. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, I'm so glad I do a. Uh, I'm so glad I do a podcast where I have to talk and uh, put words together. It's good, isn't it? Um, what they've done is they've put these uh, little bits together, which is for each main gig they have most rocking moment, least rocking moment, best on stage quote, and the verdict. To be honest, for me, you read the review and you get what you need out of it. I don't really see the point of this. Like I said last week, it's all a little bit just 17. I'm not going to be reading those out. I'm just going to read the review. Let's start the review. Stoke Quartet, reverse, kick off this fine punk pop evening in typically noisy fashion. They're young, energetic, enthusiastic and pretty average tonight, actually. Guitarist vocalist Mick Flock may have Billy Joe Armstrong's geek punk stage mannerisms down pat, but unfortunately the tunes don't measure up as well. New single Lock, with its Huskadoo bad religion phrasing, is the standout track, but a cover version of California Dreaming should have been left screeching in the rehearsal room. Reverse are still fumbling for the right gear. If their musical career doesn't work out, Lunatic Geordie's China Drum could find alternative careers as stand-up comedians. But all their clowning around shouldn't overshadow the fact that they have a half a dozen songs as good as anything currently residing on US platinum punk platters. Last week, at the Astoria supporting Ash, this Tyneside trio were a revelation. Tonight, we get the same songs, the same hyperactive toddler's stagecraft, and the same stream of wisecracks, but without the inspirational spark, a mediocre display from a fine band. 
All journalists are contractually obliged to mention that Honeycracks sound a bit like CJ and Willie's old muckers, the Wild Hearts. So with that out of the way, it's time to wise up to the fact that they're a great band on their own terms. Honeycrack looked brilliant on stage. Leader of the pack is surprisingly Willie, a much underrated frontman. All Beatles jacket, jokes and groovy gesticulations. Beside him, CJ, Pete and Mark tear about like choreographed rioters, guitars slung low and heads held high, the cockiest gang in town. More importantly, Honeycrack sound brilliant. A day glow amalgam of the Ramones, the Beach Boys and the Muppets. Three crunchy guitars jostling for space, four-part harmony vocals and huge spurts of melody make for a most engaging cocktail. From shit-kicking opener King of Misery through to call-and-response rave-up animals, this was jagged pop of the highest order. Good good feeling bounces skywards on an infectious reggae chorus. Galway is sharp, spirited and spiteful, while new single Sitting at Home is a glorious morning of couch potato blues. If the Wild Hearts do split up, Honeycrack are more than capable of snatching their pop-punk crown. Next up we have the Wild Hearts, supported by Cecil, live at the Academy Manchester on Monday, October 23rd. This one is reviewed by Paul Travers and this gets 5 out of 5. Intense is one word you could use to describe rising anti-stars Cecil. Lunatic is quite possibly another. The singer is dancing like he's having an epileptic fit with the lead of his microphone wrapped tightly around his face. Surely, this is not normal behaviour. The music lurches somewhere between the warp blues of the Jesus Lizard and the comparatively more straightforward approach of Wall. It's devoid of any discernible humour, but not of emotion and a certain oblique quality. Cecil impressed, but any lasting memory of them is soon eclipsed by the barely controllable explosion of the Wild Hearts. Cue lights, cue flash bombs, and cue a band powering through I Wanna Go Where The People Go as if their lives depend on it. Greetings from Shitsville and Everlone follow without a pause for breath, and if this tour is to be their last, they're going out with a bang. Danny still looks like the lost Ramon and was surely born to the bass guitar. Ginger, dishevelled as ever, actually looks happy to be here and new face Jeff Stratfield seems to fit straight into the fold. The weight is back in the guitar department, but they haven't lost the extra edge they found as a three-piece. If anything, they're playing with a renewed vigour and more fire than the towering inferno. Put on your rubber shoes on and get fucking bouncy, says Ginger, as they launch into Nita Nitro. Everybody does. There's a connection between band and audience that you don't often see these days, and everyone down the front knows all the words to all the songs, including the obscurities and fished for luckies brought out for the encore. The melodic scatter bombs of woe shit you got through and caffeine bomb are lobbed out in quick succession. The brittle caprice slows the pace somewhat but isn't lacking in muscle. TV Tan sees the crowd go monkey and they finish the main set with an extended love you till I don't, complete with reggae interlude and rancid insert. See you next time Manchester, it'll be a lot sooner than the break we've had this time concludes Ginger. Let's hope that's a promise because after all the cartoon rock and roll antics and frats of splitting, the Wild Hearts remain one of the most exciting live bands around. Next up we have Clawfinger, live at the Highbury Garage London on Tuesday, October 24th. Reviewed by Ray Zell, this gets 4 out of 5. Walking in out of the October drizzle and chill into the solidified block of heat that is the garage is an awareness kick. Yolp. You've got to both breathe in here and enjoy yourself in the company of sweet rat thugs Clawfinger who just happened to be in the neighbourhood on a drive-by. The half-baked optimism of tomorrow starts the set, a crystal clear sound with stabbing poke your eyes out punctuation. Civilised chaos ensues with stage divers dealt with swiftly and politely. No mess, no fuss. Everybody's happy. 
especially the person who caught frontman Zach Tell's coveted t-shirt as he sacrificed it to the masses. Sweet. And actually, Zach with his stretch rack victim physique and excruciatingly tight plaited barnet and his band come across with a warmth and charm which was AWOL on their last visit when intent was the only thing on the menu. The truth is the penultimate set number, but it's passe sucker motherfucker ravens are rendered ineffective by the imaginative do what I say, which follows and which has the crowd enhancing the number with not unentertaining personalised gesticulations. And before final encore number nigger, Zach appears relieved that he no longer has to launch into explanation for its title. Yes, tonight we are all happy, riding the same beam and sus to hell. The last review this week is for Alanis Morissette live at the Shepherd's Bush Empire, London on Monday, October 23rd. This one is reviewed by Liz Evans and this gets 3 out of 5. Alanis Morissette has an astonishing voice. Her incisive, sometimes deranged lyrics elevate her songs beyond the mire of mainstream radio play, into which they'd fall if they depended entirely on the big chorus melody thing. And her character bellows through her craft without a backward glance to subtlety. Tonight, she whirls on stage glittering and glowing, sparks literally flying from the tips of her hair, purple feathers fluttering beneath her chin, voice soaring, she's glorious, a fireball of energy tearing at the bit, bursting with celebration, but she's flanked by big-jawed guitarists with bare chests and too much hair, and quite frankly, it softens the blow. Morissette needs this Los Angeles rock treatment like she needs a hole in the head. It's riddled with outdated cliches and rubs the vital edge off her harrowing words and confrontational, at times, violent sentiments. Without it, she'd strike to the core, but with it, her aim can only be approximate. The power and joy and sheer damage of these songs isn't altogether disguised, apart from on a couple of occasions, merely distorted. And while that's undisputably a shame, it doesn't prevent Morissette from delivering an impassioned performance. She sings her soul right out of her body, bearing love and hate and all its thick scar tissue to an audience who lap it up. Mary Jane brings the only damp moment, but the satisfying contempt of you ought to know, the quirky optimism of hand in my pocket, the delirium of head over feet, and the wit and verve of ironic more than dismiss it. Morissette may originally have been marketed as Canada's Tiffany, but teen pop queens grow up, and this one has blossomed into a sassy, intelligent, highly distinctive individual with a voice the size of Everest. All she needs to do now is blow out the big rock frills and let that voice do all the talking. We now come to this week's cover stars, the Wild Hearts. They think it's all over, but is it? Are the Wild Hearts really going to split up this weekend or has Ginger scammed a lot of us? Jason Arnott goes fishing for answers. Outside London's Water Rats pub in King's Cross, propped up against the wall with his ever-present bottle of Newcastle Brown Ale, is Wildheart's main man Ginger. Having just seen Honeycrack play a great show at the Splash Club, he looks in good cheer, good health even. Then he makes an announcement that sends a ripple through the gut. We're going to split up after the tour, and you can spread that news around as much as you like. This was six weeks ago. Since then, the story of the Wildheart's split has been splashed out over every rock paper. Ginger wasn't drunk that night, or at least he didn't sound it. He had the composure of a man who had given the idea a great deal of thought, had done his crying, and now wanted the Wild Hearts to go out with a high-spirited caffeine bomb bang. He talked about the new hardcore rock and roll band he would form after the split, and how the Wild Hearts would leave behind a great musical legacy and a blueprint for hundreds of new bands. There are no rules, and that's the only rule. This, however, does little to raise the spirits of any Wild Hearts fan, me included. 
A month later, The Wild Hearts played two low-key shows with new guitarist Jeff Stretfield before shooting off to Japan for their first ever shows there. Ginger had now slightly changed his mind. As he said in Kerrang a few weeks back, he didn't want The Wild Hearts to self-destruct. But unless we can get out of the East-West deal and sign to someone else, then yes, we will split up. The latest instalment sees the band, their manager Gary Garner and myself sat around the table sharing a beer and a few laughs and talking about where the Wild Hearts really do go from here. We actually forgot we were a band, admits Ginger. For a while there, we forgot what we actually do. The Buckley Tivoli was one of the best gigs we've ever done. It made us want to open our wings and go somewhere. We realise this band is better than even we thought it was. Not just the best band in the world, but the universe. It was one of those gigs where everything fitted in and we realised this is what we do. There was actually a point during that gig recalls drummer Rich where all four of us were smiling. Together smirks Ginger at the same thing. But regardless of what good mates we are and how we like to go down the pub together, the meat and potatoes is that when we get on stage, it's great. Everything else in comparison is tiny. Ginger is on fine form today. As you can see from the various ridiculous poses he pulls during our photo session, the Wild Hearts have regained their cocky sense of greatness. The ghost of guitarist Mark Keds has gone, but the future remains uncertain. Right here, now, this seems to be their last interview. Last interview ever, for fuck's sake, the Wild Hearts. The best band in years, gone forever and a puff of smoke. But then, with the Wild Hearts, you never really know. Manager Garner describes the forthcoming UK tour as the showcase of the year. By this he means the band Hope, a record company, steps forward and offers them a way out of their current deal. If that doesn't happen, he adds, we'll have to sit down and talk about what happens next. One last question regarding the East-West versus the Wild Hearts situation has to be, do the band not shoulder any blame at all for the breakdown of communication? Let's face it, they've never been the easiest band to deal with. Well, considers Ginger, the record company's only argument could be that we've been obstinate, that we've changed our minds about things, and that we've been really antagonistic. But that's one reason why people like the band. We're not pushovers, we fight for what we believe in. Earlier this year, the Wild Hearts entered the Kerrang office and smashed the computer. That day, they had read a news piece suggesting a split between Ginger and Danny and got pissed off. Can't imagine Thunder doing that. No, says Ginger, and that's why our fans insist on something a bit more realistic. In this day and age, you've got to have a standpoint. Something in this life you'd fight for, whether it's a band or a family, and this band is more of a family than most of us have. Any man with a fucking backbone would have done the same as we did in that office, and every magazine wanted to talk to us after it. The East West Press Department was fucking flying. After all the music we've ever written, we'd never got so much attention. It doesn't make sense to me. The Wild Hearts are insistent that this tour will be a mind blower. As Danny laughs, we'll do every request except fuck off. Of new guitarist Jeff Stratfield, Ginger infuses, we needed someone who makes us excited again, and these gigs have been a pure adrenaline charge. It's mostly due to Jeff being there. We did well as a free piece, he recalls of the European gigs that he, Danny and Rich played alone, but you just can't beat two guitars and four voices. Richie's discovered some golden tones, and Danny knows the song so well that when it comes to doing a harmony, he just locks straight in. Jeff's been playing Wild Heart stuff for years. Right uh, from the release of their Mondo Akimbo Agogo EP in April 1992, the Wild Hearts prompted a minor revolution in the way rock bands approach songwriting. Time changes, certain guitar noises, enormous riffs jostling with melodies for pole position. You can see the effect, Ginger nods. It fucks you off a little bit when you hear bands saying they sound nothing like the Wild Hearts. Then you hear them, and they don't sound nothing like the Wild Hearts. Come on boys, be honest with yourselves. Ginger claims he hasn't heard up-and-coming Geordie's Whatever featuring ex-drummer Stiddy. Nevertheless, 
They supported the Wild Hearts on some dates of this tour, uh, due to reliable sources telling Ginger the band's worth. And Honeycrack, with the ex-Wild Hearts Willie and CJ, what does he think of them? He pauses, cigarette burning between two fingers. They're alright, he shrugs, a good band. A grin slowly cracks his face. I like the influences. If, God forbid, the Wild Hearts should split after their London show on November 4th, what would Ginger see as a handful of their finest tunes? Sky Babies, he instantly says, is a 13-minute UFO-obsessed track from Fishing for Luckies. That song is a handful of our finest moments. It was all recorded in one take, too. Uh, there ain't many bad moments, really, he ponders, scratching his head. Some of the new stuff that we haven't even recorded yet is pretty shit hot, to be honest. I forgot how many songs we've actually got. Pipes up Rich. Some of the most memorable bits are the ones you don't actually play live. There was a bit... Uh, in Caffeine Bomb, where Ginger spent half an hour throwing buckets of water and gravel against walls to get the sound of someone puking on the floor. Ginger notes that the recording session for the Sucker Punch single B-Sides has to rank as the weirdest. The morning that the Wild Hearts were about to lay down the golden track 29 times the pain, they heard that Kurt Cobain had killed himself. Ginger, taking the news worse than you might expect. From a hard bastard like him, added the line, I'm gonna miss Kurt Cobain to the song. That was such a bizarre time that, he recalls, the Cobain thing affected me so much. I don't think any member of my family dying would have been worse. I felt completely lost. After Kurt Cobain had that first overdose, I started feeling like him. I was hoping he was going to get through because I was going to get through. He stopped short, then remembers the next rock and roll tragedy. Manic Street Preachers is guitarist Richie James. The next time that happened, I had a dream about Richie. Then he went missing. I was feeling for the bloke all day. If I have a dream about you, you'd fucking better watch yourself. Ginger and Rich have been living out of suitcases since the band went to New York earlier this year. Rich offers a lyric from an as-yet-unreleased B-side, Bad Time to be Having a Bad Time. Stuck in the habit of packing, unpacking, and packing again. That's our lives at the moment, he says. Every time it comes up in the song, you get a lump in your throat. Have the Wild Hearts changed much as people in these last five years? Fucking hell yeah, splutters Ginger. We've calmed down a bit, because you can't go around being a 24-hour cunt. The more stressful shit you go through, the more responsibility you learn. We're masters at getting ourselves out of shit, and we've made mistakes, but we won't make them again. Mistakes like what? Well, I can't think of anything other than really personal ones, and this isn't really the place. But personally, we're still learning, and this is a rebirth. What if the rebirth lasts a month? What will you do then? Cry murmurs Rich. Sign on the doll shrugs Danny. But there'll always be music, won't there, Ginge? Ginger? Oh yeah, he sparks. I'm still going to be doing music, but we'll see what happens. This is definitely the most important time of our career, but, he grins, no one's got a fucking clue how it's going to turn out. Gonna get it together, my bell. Like my bell, I got the ill communication. My bell, got the ill communication. Feedback. What are the rockers of 1995 going to complain about this week? The price of Newcastle Brown Owl at the Astoria? Or why Dog Eat Dog remix No Fronts about 37 times and put out a 12-inch with all of those on it. Who knows? Let's find out. Letter of the Week this week begins. Why is heavy metal music? Is it Metallica, Pantera, Caius and Slayer or PJ Harvey, The Levelers and Boy George? In old issues of your magazine, I've seen artists like Phil Collins and Meatloaf topping the Kerrang charts and sometimes even starring on the covers. These people are about as heavy as the air I'm breathing. Thankfully, Kerrang has stopped covering these pathetic artists. In other heavy magazines and on the radio, groups like the Jesus and Mary Chain, Genesis, Beck, The Prodigy and Cypress Hill have all appeared at some time. I would not describe Cypress Hill and The Prodigy as heavy. 
industrial acts get a big mention in heavy magazines too, even though many of them do not have a guitarist. Nowadays, heavy metal is joining up with the alternative scene. I think this is good because I'm a big alternative fan as well as a metal fan, like many other rock music fanatics. Throw in some more alternative bands such as Pop League itself, Radiohead and KMFDM, the Manix, Green Day and Ash are not enough. Many alternative and indie bands are heavier than the likes of Bon Jovi and Aerosmith. Aerosmith are still a brilliant band though. There are plenty of alternative bands out there that would be well suited to a magazine like yours. Lauren Bernard from Bushy. Hang on a minute, I think I know him. That's Lags. Um, he played guitar in Gallows. I'm pretty sure that's him. I know he's from Watford and Bushy's in Watford. Isn't that strange? How very interesting. Or not interesting if you don't know. It's interesting for me. This is the first letter I write to Kerrang and it's going to be the last. Probably because I'm so pissed off with the whole fucking rock industry. For a start, I've just caught the flu. Had a hernia confirmed and also heard the news about the Wild Heart split. I bawled my fucking eyes out. But now, my sorrow has turned to anger and I'm after someone's blood. Why shouldn't we let the industry men ruin the Wild Hearts? Are we just going to sit back and think, well there goes one of the best rock bands ever. Oh well, what's on the telly? The Wild Hearts are too good and have too many fans to just fade away and leave us like this. And believe me, we will fight for the Wild Hearts. The British rock scene has just started to soar. Let's not shoot it down. Suzanne Broughton Astley. No, no, no. It can't be. How could Caius even think of splitting up? Caius are and will always be the greatest. I appeal to John, Josh, Scott and Alfredo to rethink their decision. Come on guys, you can sort out these so-called irreconcilable differences and you can tell Electra to fuck off too. If you can't do that, come to the UK to play so we can say goodbye properly. Neil Redding. This letter is in reply to the massive pile of shit printed on your letters page in Kerrang 567. People who don't like Green Day, and especially to the disillusioned twat who wrote the letter of the week in the aforementioned issue. All I can say is, you must be one of the poor, misguided, superficial pussies you mentioned. So we have some questions. Do you really think that four years ago, when you got into punk off your own back, Green Day weren't slogging away on the underground circuit, playing clubs smaller than your toilet? Don't you think that Green Day got into punk off their own back too? When have Green Day actually crowned themselves kings of punk? Have you actually listened to Dookie or indeed smoothed out Slappy Hours or Kapunk? Two fucking excellent albums Green Day released without the assistance of magazine hype or endless MTV rotation. And finally, do you really think that Green Day Offspring and other bands ransacked the office of MTV, brandishing their knackered guitars and green hair, and forced them to bow down to the UK punk invasion and play their videos non-stop? Highly unlikely. Green Day are simply a brilliant band who play fun songs about things which matter to them. They're not trying to lead some punk rebellion, they are simply making cool music. This letter is from two people who strangely have Nevermind the Bollocks, Machine Gun Etiquette and Dookie in their record collections and happen to think that all three are excellent records. And one more thing before we sign off, when are all the comparisons between Green Day and Offspring going to stop? The two bands are completely different. E.T. and Mad Bad Mel Paradise. Gagging for a shagging. I am down on bended knee begging you to print a pic of Dave Sabo of Skid Row. He's so horny it hurts. He brings out the ravenous beast in me. Kelly Daventry. With all the current press on Def Leppard, I wonder if you dare print this letter to highlight some points. 1. Collectors already have all the songs on vault. Why to put them out again on different formats? 2. The current single contains remixes previously released. Excitable May 88 and Rocket January 89. Why no new material such as a Bowie cover? 3. 
Collectors already have live material on the limited edition double CD from Radio 1 coverage. Will this material appear on future slang singles? Am I the only one who thinks Vault is a piss poor collector's scam? A hippie from hell. In reply to Simon Bristow's letter in issue 568, Simon, you may hate ACDC and think that all their shit sounds the same, but to compare them to Nirvana is just stupid. Firstly, if the likes of ACDC had never happened along with Led Zeppelin, the Sams, etc., Nirvana and Seattle would never have seen the light of day. But secondly, and much more importantly, is the fact that ACDC continued, produced more great albums and gave us some of the best world tours even after the late great Bon Scott died. Not like Nirvana, who quit after that frontman of theirs shot himself. We all know that Alice in Chains, Soundgarden and Screaming Trees rule Seattle. Simon, are you related to Eric Bristow? Matt, Boburn. The new Iron Maiden is an absolute load of bollocks. Leave the pirate music to the professionals like Running Wild. Rolf Rules from Melbourne. On September the 4th, Jeff Rotel released their latest album, Roots to Branches. To date, Kerrang has not reviewed it. Why not? Are you short-staffed? J-Rack, Scumthorpe. Is trad metal in its final death throes? Only time will tell if Maiden, Aussie, ACDC, the Let's Purple or Rainbow can have an impact in 95 and 96 in the face of the teen wave of post-grunge. Rest in peace, heavy metal. Thanks for 25 great years. Derek Gill, Sale. Ill communication. Next in this week's episode, we have a piece entitled Lust for Life. Blind Melon singer Shannon Hoon lived life to the full. Now, after a suspected drugs overdose, he is dead. Jason Arnott interviewed the singer in August. There was Shannon Hoon, the singer in million-selling US rock band Blind Melon, clutching a selection of soppy kids' books. One was called Papa Please Get the Moon For Me, another was My Little Golden Book About God. It was mid-August in London's Copthorne Tara Hotel. Photographer Dave Willis and I were there to do a Blind Melon feature for Kerrang. It was our first time working with the boys and by the end, we definitely didn't want it to be the last. There was a concept to the piece. With the band poised to return to hard touring, the idea was for each member of the band to present a vital possession of theirs, something they couldn't really be without on the road. For example, bassist Brad Smith brought a pool cue down to the room. His secret ambition, believe it or not, turned out to be to meet another UK snooker star like Stephen Hendry. Drummer Glenn Graham bought a keyboard in. Guitarist Roger Stevens bought a book. His guitaring partner Christopher Thorne bought licorice sticks and his sketch pad. Shannon Hoon was last in, wearing his hat and shades, a little hazy, having just awoken, displaying his kiddie books. He explained that he'd been reading them onto tapes and sending them to his month and a half old baby daughter Nico uh, Blue. There is the only way that I can be there without being there, he shrugged. He suddenly noticed my tape recorder running. Are we doing the interview now, he asked. Yep. Well, we laughed. I'm getting all mushy here. I'd better put my rock head back on. He was just kidding and continued to chat in exactly the same vein, stressing how much the birth of Nico Blue had changed his life. He was a man with a newfound sense of purpose. No matter how much I could try to prepare myself for it, there's no way you can. How do you prepare to be overwhelmed with every part of your body? It gives meaning to the big picture now. I'm going to be a father longer than I'm going to be a singer. I don't know which would be the most exhausting, actually. Would being a father affect Shannon's writing? It won't affect the way I write, but it will affect the way I live. My home life has always been very calm and quiet, believe it or not. And although it's a bit noisier now, it's the healthiest thing that's ever happened to me. We'd been wanting to have a child for a while, and of course, when you stop trying, it happens. The singer candidly admitted that leaving home had proved hard. I'd be lying to you if I said I was enthusiastic about being back on tour. A month is uh, by no means enough time to enjoy something so huge as a child. Trying to mesh it all together is quite a difficult task. I'm not even sure I'd want to. One is a bit purer than the other. 
Blind Melon's first eponymous album sold over 2 million copies. The subsequent touring drove the band a little crazy. By the end, they all admit that they didn't particularly care for each other's company. This time, pledged whom they were going to take things slower. We can prepare for it a little bit better now. We'll know the city's better this time. I think I'll be doing a little more sleeping too. This time, we'll be pacing ourselves, trying not to live at 90 miles an hour. I think the band and crew are probably a bit relieved when they call my room and I happen to be sleeping, he smiled. Usually I'd be calling their rooms at 6am going, hey man, what's going on? I got nothing to do. Hoon also revealed that he had recently come out of a rehabilitation centre for alcohol and drug problems. At present, he was banned from the demon drink, something he found quite amusing. I was just sitting in my room and the concierge came in and took all the alcohol out of my minibar, he chuckled. He was from Zaire or something and he was saying, ha ha, I take away your lager now, you can't have none. It's pretty weird when someone from Zaire knows who you are and knows about your alcohol problem. More seriously, he sighed, there's a lot of things I'm trying to get used to on this tour. There's so much time on hand. I'm spending a lot of time going out and seeing cities now. This band doesn't spend a lot of its spare time together though. Trying to fill in and kill the hurry up and wait part of this business is difficult. It would be a little easier if I had Lisa and Nico with me, but the baby's too young to travel. Should be a couple of months yet. With that thought in mind, Hoon cheerfully went through to the next room where Dave Willis was waiting to take photos. Photo sessions can be like pulling teeth if a musician isn't into it. But Hoon was not only patient and willing, but fucking good laugh. Guide me baby, guide me, he comically pleaded to Willis in his wispy cartoon character voice. He went on to exchange general conversation about the imminent Reading and Donington festivals, talking both to us and his tour manager Paul. There were a couple of distinctly off the wall moments. At one point, Hoon remembered a dream he'd had about UFOs, then appeared confused. Had it been a dream or had he seen it on TV? He also produced a serviette that he had called his relapse napkin. On the serviette was a letter he'd written to someone while in rehab earlier that month. We had heard that Hoon had slightly bizarre feet due to him uh, having walked around barefoot a great deal. At Willis's request, Hoon gladly removed his shoes, showing off a second toe which was one knuckle longer than the first. As Willis snapped away, I pointed out that no one at Kerrang knew why the band were called Blind Melon after all this time. You know what Hoon grinned, now lying on the floor with his foot in the air? I've just established a common denominator with everybody in your office, because I don't have a fucking clue why we're called Blind Melon. The definition of Blind Melon is to have no fucking clue. What with the band's new album being called Soup, there was always going to be a dumb shot of Hoon with a can of minestrone. The singer was happy to oblige. Before you knew it, he and his bandmates were off on a bus to play an acoustic set for the BBC. Hoon's parting shots were a firm handshake and a cry of thank you sir, take care. Shannon Hoon had no death wish, making his demise all the more tragic and shocking. He was a gifted individual who appeared to love life. One thing that Hoon said during the interview could hardly be more bitterly ironic. Asked if drugs would be kept under control on the soup tour, he shrugged. It depends, you know. My world and this tour don't revolve around that. Our off time was spent repairing all the damage that all that crap does to you. By no means am I a Christian yet, but obviously now being a father, there's a lot of things I need to take into consideration. Staying alive is one of them. The singles this week are reviewed by Morat. The first single is Dog Day Sunrise by Fear Factory. This gets 4Ks. Perhaps the least representative single Fear Factory could put out, but this makes sense that they've got a support slot with Ozzy Osbourne to plug. Dog Day Sunrise, ahead of David Cover, is strangely eerie, almost melancholic and lacking their usual savagery, but proves beyond doubt the band's commercial potential. Thankfully, they're raging again through the other tracks. 
Status quo, with their single When You Walk In The Room. This gets 1k. Perhaps a little early for the Christmas number one slot, but this 1963 Searchers cover is certainly crass enough to reach that coveted position. Utter drivel. But fans will be kept happy by the generic free cordery of track two. Skid Row, with their single Breaking Down, this gets 2Ks. There's only two Skid Row tunes I can even bear to be in the same room with, and this pompous ballad is not one of them. Full marks for sticking to their guns, but otherwise this is pretty much what you'd expect from a Skid Row slurry. Fans have to buy three different formats if they want to hear all the tracks, which by anyone's standards is a ripoff. Tomorrow by Clawfinger, this gets 3Ks. Catchy, if a little too poppy, ditty which manages to veer away from their earlier material in a quite satisfying manner. For a bunch of pretend Americans, this Swedish outfit are surprisingly innovative and thoroughly enjoyable. Alice in Chains with their single Grind, this gets 4Ks. More excellently twisted sounds from a band who when on form can be among the best on earth. This will take a while to grow on everyone, which is a bugger since they're deleting it after a week. Cool, nonetheless. The single of the week this week is Diane by Therapy, and this one gets 5Ks. Absolutely awesome. This outstanding Huskadoo cover from Therapy's Infernal Love Opus is better than the original and never fails to send a shiver down the spine when Therapy play it live. Hell, it's 11.30 on a Tuesday morning and it's still scary enough to make a grown man weep. Due to the lyrics, it will doubtless get no airplay, which is a great shame because it wouldn't take much effort to mention the Rape Crisis 24-hour helpline after each airing. The number to call for help is 0171837160. Sadly, the advanced tape chewed itself up before any of the acoustic tracks could be aired. It's a dog's life. There's still skin, but New York Groove King's Dog Eat Dog are one of the hottest bands on the European live circuit. And now they're out to break America. Crowd surfing frontman John Connor reveals his plans for world domination to Paul Elliott. He crowd surfs, he snowboards, he rhymes, he raps, he's got a pudding bowl haircut from hell, and he leads the line for New York hardcore hip hop groove gurus Dog Eat Dog. He's John Connor, and here is his story from barely a pot to pissing paperboy to still not very rich but totally hip and happening rock rap party king. Kerrang! So how did you start off? Some friends of mine asked me to sing for a covers band they had going. We'd do Metallica tunes, Seek and Destroy and a couple of Anthrax ditties. I still like that music. I don't forsake my metal roots like a lot of people do these days. Just yesterday, I was cruising to Motley Crue's Shout of the Devil. It still has that teen spirit, shall we say. Doggy Dog was my first serious original band. Everything happened suddenly. We never expected to get a record deal. We made a demo just to hear how our songs sounded on tape and we ended up getting signed off that tape. It cost us 400 bucks. We cut it down in Jersey City with a couple of guys we knew through Mucky Pop. It was a one night affair. We went in at six and came out at six the next morning. Then we went to work. What did you do with the first bit of money you earned from playing music? We got 50 bucks for Dog Eat Dog's first gig in an ice cream parlor in New Jersey. The guy who paid us said, thank you, you guys were great, please don't come back. Kids have been slamming around and wrecking the place. We spent all the money on a barrel of beer and had a big keg party after the show. Did you feel like you'd made it big when you signed your deal with Roadrunner? No, to be honest, it's not a great deal, but Roadrunner were the only company to approach us. Our lawyer said, if you guys want to make a record, sign it. We weren't planning a career and we still haven't made any money. For the next record, we've negotiated a better deal, but all the money is going into making a great record. 
Does Doggy Dog feel more like a serious career now that you've sold a few albums and toured the globe? Yeah, because you want to give kids the best possible show. That can mean not having a few beers or a puff before a gig. This is a great hobby. It's something I love, but let's face it, it is a career. I like a few drinks, but only after a show. I'm not straight edge. Everybody can do what they want to their bodies. I don't condone or condemn alcohol, soft drugs or straight edge. Hard drugs aren't for me. It's a waste of time. I sympathise with the rest of the guys in Blind Melon now that Shannon Hoon is dead. Hard drugs are not pretty. What do you spend your money on? Entertainment, movies, going out to gigs, drinks, but I'm trying to save my money. My one luxury is a new 4x4 truck and this winter I'll be spending all my money on snowboarding. I'm pretty well connected though, so I can get on a few mountains for half price. So why have Dog Eat Dog got ahead of the pack? We're fun, we're down to earth too and kids can relate to that. We've uh, really worked hard and in the last six months it's given us a much higher media profile. MTV and stuff like that. We've earned respect for our constant touring and we've proved that we can play anywhere from small clubs to a big festival like Dynamo. And we're not just some band that's been shoved down people's throats by a major record label. Do you think that your hard work ethic was passed down from your parents? I think so. I've worked since I was 12 when I delivered newspapers for 25 bucks a week. It was my money. Dog Eat Dog haven't got a huge advance for the next album. We want to make a great record and if it sells well, that's an honest buck. So what are Dog Eat Dog's new career goals? When we made All Borough Kings, the Doggy's first full album, we wanted to sell 100,000 copies. That's what we thought we needed to sell to continue making music professionally. We tripled that amount and we've been on tour for triple the time we expected. So in some ways, we've already achieved more than we'd ever dreamed. Our goal is to build on the success of All Borough Kings. We want to go to places we've never been before. South America, Asia and back to Japan and Israel. And we want to break the US a bit more. We feel that we can have a strong presence in the US. But first, we're going to make the best record we can. We're going to take our time. Not as sweet as time, but we want to make a great record. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record that's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. Next up, we have albums. Alice in Chains, with their album, Alice in Chains. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, this one gets 3Ks. The difficult third album. Not only that, but heavily rumoured to be the last. Alice in Chains completes the trilogy opened by the excellent facelift album five years ago. You thought Dirt, the quartet's second album, was a dirge. You ain't heard nothing yet. This is assuredly the darkest, bleakest album of the three, demanding repeated listens if any kind of perspective is to be gained. It's an overwhelmingly downpaced affair stating its miserable intent right from the start with Grind. A lumbering riff kicks in, overlaid with some bizarre lead spasms from guitarist Jerry Cantrell. There's a feeling throughout Alice in Chains, in fact, of Cantrell's lead work and singer Lane Staley jostling for pole position. Staley undoubtedly has one of the most distinct voices in rock to emerge in the last few years. His multi-track voice of flesh-crawling doom thumps its stamp down on Grind. With a typical haunting line, you'd be well advised not to plan my funeral before the body dies. Whether or not this is the singer, Lambastin knows who had um, him written off as a smack riddle burnout has yet to be revealed. Frankly, it's difficult not to see every Alice in Chains song as being about drugs. Getting them, doing them and feeling like shit afterwards. Nightmarish titles here like Sludge Factory and Head Creeps do little to lift the feeling that Staley's on a permanent come down. Claustrophobia, you got it. The former tune, glues another line into the brain. You always told me you'd never live past 25. It also lasts over seven minutes and this album has more than its fair share of epics. Unfortunately, some of them appear needlessly so. 
Sludge is overlong, wandering into a freeform piece of indulgence, like everyone's playing a different song. The nondescript eight minute frogs is the chief offender. After the lightweight melancholy of Staley Chajon with Mad Season, we might have expected Alice in Chains to rock out once again, but the energy of early slam bang tracks like We Die Young or Them Bones is just a memory now. That's not to say there's nothing of worth here. The album's first half throws up some wall climbing corkers. Brush Away eventually distinguishes itself as a brooding standout, as does the rumbling head creeps. Heaven Beside You is a fine, instantly memorable tune that sounds like something from Ziggy Stardust era David Bowie, and the only moment when you can comfortably picture Alice in Chains on MTV with this album. The final track, Over Now, finishes the album well. So why only 3Ks? Because it's easy to picture Alice in Chains as the towering classic it could have been. With the fat chopped from its running time, it's a brave, non-conformist album, one that may well sprout an extra one or two, even 2Ks with time, but for now, Alice in Chains just doesn't sound like the album that fans were going cold turkey for. Next up we have the album Super State by Skyscraper. Reviewed by Chris Watts, this gets 5Ks. So what happens when you can't fault an album? Talk about the weather. Talk about the last album you heard that sounded this good. An album that sounds like it was recorded in the teeth of Armageddon with just 12 thick songs for defence. An album as urgent and sinister and accessible and memorable as Superstate is going to be hard to beat. Who cares that it should have been out last year? Don't blame Skyscraper, a band only the very stupid can now dismiss as yesterday's news. When you look as unassuming as Skyscraper, you're going to have to fight to make an impression. Maybe it's the way that bassist Addy Vines pins down the almost industrial grooves of Union Jackoffs and I belong to me. Maybe it's the way that Vic Kemlick's guitar manages to grind and splash across 70, 40, 20 and their rejuvenated classic Bed of Nails. But it's mainly in the way that Vic sings this album like his lungs have been scraped red raw. He towers over this album like a giant. I don't want to be one of you, one of us, one of anyone he pleads on I belong to me. Carving super sharp icicles from his old guitar and turning Superstate from a dramatic debut into a bombastic white hot classic. In short, this is a huge black missile stuffed with love and venom, and songs to die for. Songs as massive as Lovesick and Choke, and the singles don't even steal Superstate's overall thunder. Skyscraper have been to the moon. This is the sound of re-entry. We now come to a review of a CD and a video, home video, remember those, of the same thing. And uh, yeah, they're reviewed on the same review. A little bit odd under albums. Anyway, doesn't matter. This one is called Odd Man Out by Various. So the CD gets 2Ks and the video gets 3Ks. This review, sorry, is by Meany. Up until now, snowboard videos have been produced solely for the specialist niche. The mighty Sony have picked up Odd Man Out for distribution with a tandem CD soundtrack release in the hope of crossing over into the larger general interest market, which ought not to prove too difficult. The reasons why snowboarding is hip-hyped and the world's fastest growing sport are easy to unravel. Consider 1. The infinite cool points derived from its surfing and skateboarding lineage whilst 2. Being easier than either to practice, hence poser friendly. And 3. Simultaneously flipping a finger at skiing, social climber, soft-ass, day-glow wanker tendencies. 4. Snowboarding rides the punk rock revival well. Members of Offspring, Knife X, Dog Eat Dog and the Beastie Boys are avid boarders. Odd Man Out, the video, follows the trail of five American snowboarders from Colorado trekking around Europe. 
encountering many a hot local along the way, taking in much snowy alpine terrain as well as the odd wave or two in Portugal and France, and a smidgen of skateboarding. Snowboard-wise, the riding, being quite resort-orientated, is very jump-heavy. There's loads of twirling, airborne tomfoolery and psychotic somersaults over roads and the like, and the whole thing could do with a few more straightforward, off-piece carving, high-speed mountain descents, the likes of which feature in the best, bigger, budget videos like the Totally Bored series, which are chock-full of big-name pros. If you haven't seen a snowboard video before, you'll find it all amazing anyway. Grunge has been a label too readily slapped down on snowboard garb, with more than the odd band of that ilk finding its way onto video soundtracks. Odd Man Out is pretty top heavy in that department too. The CD listing reads like a who's who of Pearl Jam and Anderson Chains wannabes, a Sony speciality. Here we get Reef, Head Swim, Precocious Aussie Bratch Silverchair, Our Lady Peace and Interscope Records Bush all contributing their rather run-of-the-mill flannel-shirted Seattle-style rock. Indie King's Oasis wiped the floor with all of them. Honest? The Immaculate Slide Away being one of the, uh, their least derivative and most abrasive efforts. And rising Irish stars Ash name-checked the legendary Jackie Chan more than a few times on the excellent bubblegum tinge punker Kung Fu. Other notable cuts come from Quicksandish Essex Crew Understand and New York's Prog Hardcore Men Orange 9mm, whereas Stum and 311 are not really anything to wet your knickers over. And Laps Midland's Fraggle Rockers Ned's Atomic Dustbin just plain suck. To these ears, a very patchy collection. Under albums now, there is a small in brief section where there are smaller um, album reviews rather than the big ones, which um, obviously I've just mentioned. So uh, I'm just going to read a couple of those for you, uh, ones that I think are uh, quite interesting. So the first one is Discharge with their album Hear Nothing, See Nothing, Say Nothing, reviewed by the Morat, this gets 5Ks. One of the greatest punk records ever, the re-release of Discharge's debut opus shows how and why they influenced Entombed, Sepultura and Metallica, and spawned a million copy bands. 13 years on, this is still fearsome. The riffs are blunt instruments and Cal's vocals are barked like a rabid dog. A mate of mine glued this to his turntable. That's how awesome Discharge were. Fabric with their album Lightbringer, reviewed by Meanie, this gets 3Ks. Underground British guitar music metal aside usually treads a punky pop path, but Londoners fabric draw on the more clinical side of US rock. Self-assured and beefed up 0101 shows the experimental edge isn't lost, but Lightbringer has them on the Kaya strip, unashamedly shaking their rockest ass. Sadly, their farewell offering. Gwal with their album Ragnarok. This one is reviewed by Liam Charles and this gets 3Ks. Ragnarok is not only the title of Gwar's fifth LP, but a rogue asteroid that is about to destroy Earth, launching its inhabitants into an orgy of violence and shagging. The storylines behind the likes of Fire in the Loins are streaked with all the tenderness and intellect we expect from the world's longest-running splatter movie, i.e. none. But musically, Gwar improve with every release. Ruth Ruth with their album Laughing Gallery, reviewed by Malcolm Dome, this one gets 4Ks. This New York trio have bundles of alternative energy allied to a mainstream ear for melody, the result of one of the brightest and most substantial releases of 95. Songs like Uninvited and Amnesia have the effervescence to appeal to Green Day fans, plus a cynical edge that fits neatly alongside Alice in Chains, a band with huge potential who should score major success. And the final album reviewed this week is Here's Where the Strings Come In by Superchunk. Reviewed by Meanie, this one gets 4Ks. 
Blazing out of the punk underground at the dawn of the decade, Superchunk quickly became a name to drop, only to disappear after an uninspired third LP. But this record brims with so much self-belief you realise how banal much new rock is. Superchunk splattered the punk canvas with bold colours and blending a few subtler hues, without forsaking the amphetamine intensity. Charts and the number one album this week is Vault Greatest Hits 1980-1995 by Def Leppard. Number one in the singles chart is I'd Life For You and That's The Truth Meatloaf and number one in the indie LPs is Transfusion by Apes, Pigs and Spacemen. The reader's top 10 this week comes from Elaine and Lynn from Portsmouth. Their chart begins 1. Why's the Time the Black Crows 2. Dirty Black Summer Danzig 3. Galaxy Blind Melon 4. Mother Danzig 5. Christian Woman Type of Negative 6. Forever Failure Paradise Lost 7. High Head Blues The Black Crows 8. Summer Breeze Type of Negative 9. If Life is Like a Love Bank The Wild Hearts and 10. Twist of Kane Danzig Star Tracks this week comes from Addy Vines of Skyscraper. His chart begins 1. Cleansing Prong 2. Further Down the Spiral 9 Inch Nails 3. Junkyard Birthday Party 4. Only Heaven Young God and five clear spot by Captain Beefheart and his magic band. Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues. Fear Factory frontman Burton Seabell interviews Ozzy Osbourne as the pair gets set for the hottest UK tour of the winter. Artwork posters, Alice in Change, Chili Peppers, ACDC and Ash. Honeycrack, on the road with Britain's hottest new band, Smashing Pumpkins, Billy Corgan on Life, Love and the Art of Cool and Ministry, The Drugs, The Arrest, and the whole truth. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. We will be back next Wednesday as usual. I'm off to listen to some Blind Melon and uh, remember Shannon Hoon. Talk to you all soon. Bye for now.